Welcome to the Long Thread Podcast about spinning, stitching, and weaving by hand. The podcast is presented by Long Thread Media, publishers of Spinoff, Handwoven, Piecework, and Little Looms magazines. Find us online at longthreadmedia.com. Trinway Silks is where weavers, spinners, knitters, and stitchers find the silk they love. Select from the largest variety of silk spinning fibers, silk yarn, and silk threads and ribbons at trinwaysilks.com. You'll discover a rainbow of colors thoughtfully hand-dyed in Colorado. Love natural? Trinway's array of wild silks provide choices beyond white. If you love silk, you'll love Trinway Silks, where superior quality and customer service are guaranteed. I'm your host, Long Thread Media co-founder Anne Marrow. Many fiber artists dream of moving to a remote island and raising picturesque sheep. Jane Cooper didn't set out to do that, but in her new book, The Lost Flock, she talks about moving to Orkney and becoming the caretaker of a group of Borare sheep. Jane, thanks for being with me. Hello. I actually count sheep when I'm trying to fall asleep. You know, the old joke that you see the sheep jumping over the fence, but I count breeds of sheep. I sort of lie there and I think, okay, Merino, Corydale, Cotswold. And I have to say, I don't think that I have ever gotten to Borere. You have a pretty unusual sheep breed. Can you tell me about them? Yeah, it's, it's actually the rarest sheep breed in the whole of the UK. And within the rarest sheep breed group, we have a subgroup that are genetically unique, slightly different from all the other Borore sheep. So we're kind of rarest of rare. <laughs> and you're out, is, are you on Orkney, is that right? In a fairly yes. remote island? Yes, it's a little archipelago and it's just north of the mainland of Scotland. And we can actually see the mainland of Scotland from some of our southern isles, quite close to John O'Groats, if that side of the mainland of Scotland. I think we'll, we'll look for a map and try to put that in our show notes so that folks can see where we're talking about. So what was it that drew you to these sheep? It was the wool initially, the fleece. I was on Ravelry in the Black and Beyond group, which looks at knitting with wool from different breeds of sheep, as opposed to spinning the fleece. And um, one of my friends, Felix, posted, what's the rarest sheep breed? So I looked it up and there it was. So, of course, she posted back, I want Borore yarn. <laughs> and it didn't exist. Uh, mm. At the time, this was back in 2010, there were fewer than 300 sheep outside St. Kilda. Mm. Shall I tell you about St. Kilda? Please do. Very briefly. So you've got Orkney, which is just off the northeast of Scotland. And you go a bit further north. And of course, there's Shetland. And so many people from around the world have been to Shetland for Wool Week that has just finished. But then if you go west, you've got the Hebrides and the Outer Hebrides. And when you go about 40, 50 miles west of there, right out into the Atlantic, there's this tiny archipelago called St. Kilda. A lot of people have heard about it because the entire population was evacuated in 1930. Oh my goodness, why? Well, the population had dwindled down to about 36. They'd become aware of the outside world. Uh, and also disease had taken its toll. And back then, in 1930, to get there was incredibly difficult. And certainly in the winter for lo long periods was impossible. So they had a, a young mother actually die of appendicitis because wow. they could not get medical help quickly enough. I think that was the last straw. And 36, and that had very few able-bodied men. 
it wasn't enough for them to carry on their traditional way of life. So they just left the island to the sheep? Well, they they lived on one of the islands in the archipelago called Herta, which is Mm. the largest and has the only place in St. Kilda where a a boat can come up to a shore. Mm. It's got what they call Village Bay. So they evacuated all the people and all the livestock from Herta. But there were two populations of sheep on uninhabited islands. Hmm. So there were the Soe sheep, the the little dark brown ones. Mm -hmm. And there are actually a few Soe sheep in America. They live on Soe Island. Well, I shouldn't say Soe Island because the word Soe includes island. It means sheep island. Um, It comes from an old Norse word. So they're sheep and, island sheep? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. And then you've got Borore, mm-hmm. which is another uninhabited isle. And they're completely different sheep on there. And that's where the Borore sheep get their name. You have a, a book out. And on the cover of mm-hmm. your book, there is a, a, a drawing of these sheep. And they, are, they have the most magnificent horns. And they are just sort of this, if you were to picture Viking sheep or you know, wild sheep on an island. This is kind of what you would picture. Oh, yes, yes. And the, the horns um, on the adult males, especially if, if they get to five years old or older, they are absolutely massive. The horns and the skull together can weigh five kilograms. And this is on a sheep whose total weight is 50 kilograms. Oh, my gosh. I'm just trying to do a quick conversion of that to pounds in my It's head. about two, ten. 12 pounds to 120 pounds or so. Yeah, I think it's 2.2 pounds to a kilogram. So you're looking at, yes, about 120 pounds. Mm-hmm. So the so sheep is 10% head and horns. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. And that's not so much for fighting to use the horns as weapons. It's, it's intimidation. Mm. So as well as having these huge horns, in the winter they grow what you can only describe as a mane Mm-hmm. And a beard of very thick, long fiber rather than wool hair. Mm-hmm. And so from the front, they look imposing. I would imagine that there probably aren't very many natural predators out there. Is that right? No, no. The The only natural predators on St. Kilda would be the seabirds. Mm. And that would be only predating on tiny lambs. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there are no large mammals or anything that would take adult sheep. It really just seems like they were the kings of the island out there. But then there are little flocks that have dispersed around the area. Is that right? And you have one of them. Yes. They were viewed as, in the mid-20th century, when people went out to study them, they were regarded as a feral form of Scottish blackface sheep. Mm -hmm. This was based on the fact that in 1870, a few blackface rams had been sent across to St. Kilda by the laird uh-huh. and they'd been used extensively on Herta. And for some reason, people assumed that a whole load of them had been put on Borroway and they'd completely outbred <laughs> w- what was already on Borroway. And what was already on Borroway, and it was, I really drilled this down in researching for the book, uh-huh. is actually Scotland's thought to be extinct, original heritage sheep. Really? These sheep, they're these short North Atlantic short-tailed sheep. Uh-huh. 
and they have not changed much in 6,000 years since they came into Scotland with Neolithic farmers. And the skeletal remains they found in Orkney, where we have a lot of Neolithic remains, are virtually identical to Orkney's own native primitive sheep, which are just very close cousins to Borrowrays. And they really haven't changed. So throughout the Highlands of Scotland for hundreds and thousands of years, they had these little sheep wandering around. And if they got any sort of name, it was for their appearance. So they were known as Scottish Tanface or Scottish Dunface or Scottish Shortwool. Uh And in 1880, it was said the last flock of them in near Inverness went extinct. The reason for that is the Highland clearances. Mm -hmm. And anyone with Scottish ancestors will know about the clearances because so many people left Scotland and went to Canada and North America. It's a difficult time. Uh, One of my own ancestors probably left Scotland to come down into Northern England because of that. But as the people were moved out or moved on or driven out, so were their little sheep, the little dun-faced sheep. And they were thought to be extinct. But a few had been sent across St Kilda and had been put onto Borroway. And this was some date before 1697, because that's the first written record I could find. You know, the story of sheep in the UK and the, I mean, in America, we think of England, but England, England, Scotland, yeah. is that we talk about improved versus primitive sheep. And there are so many stories where there was either deliberate or just sort of negligent losses of these herited sheep. Mm. But you've made a fairly extraordinary effort to preserve them. Oh, yes. Yes. When I was going around gathering fleece mm-hmm. from, or you can't really call them farmers. I mean, we're talking about people who had possibly half a dozen sheep, Borrowray sheep, as enthusiasts, keeping them for the love of them. Mm-hmm. As I went around the country, I kept hearing about the lost flock. Mm-hmm. And it turned out that these were some sheep that had never left Scotland mm-hmm. and had never been registered. Because they'd never been registered with the Rare Breed Survival Trust, they couldn't be interbred with registered borrowers because the offspring couldn't be registered. Okay. I'd better explain very briefly how the sheep came off St. Kilda. Yes. Ni- 1971, they wanted to, to research what they thought were feral blackface sheep. Mm-hmm. So they went over to St. Kilda and had a big ex- expedition and managed to bring off three breeding pairs, which went to the Animal Breeding Research Organization near Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. And they did various bits of research on them for 10 years. And of course, they bred them and increased the numbers. Mm-hmm. And when they'd finished doing that, interested people bought the sheep. And a Dr. Allen was the first. And then the Rare Breed Survival Trust recognized them as a breed mm-hmm. and set up the register. But I discovered that more, there'd been more expeditions to Borrowray during the 70s. At least 17 sheep were taken off. I think it's actually 24, Mm -hmm. at least 24. And I don't think they all went to Abro. And the lost flock, I am now pretty convinced, came from one of the later collections. I see. 
possibly to the Hill Farming Research Organization. And from there went to um, a flock in the Highlands where they weren't registered at the point when all the other sheep were being registered. So where are your sheep from? So my sheep come directly from this Highland flock. It was Martha Crawford had them. It was a a park, a rare breed park. Mm-hmm. They then went very briefly to a place called Elfing. And then Bob and Anne Cook, who live on the west coast of the Highlands of Scotland, in an area called Ascent, which is a really beautiful area. Mm-hmm. They bought the sheep and they looked after them for decades and kept meticulous breeding records. And Bob kept contacting the Rare Breed Survival Trust saying, look, you've only got 300 breeding ewes. We've actually got a significant number here. We get them registered. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And he just wasn't successful. But I I got my sheep from him. Firstly, he was the nearest to us, although it was an eight-hour journey to get Mm -hmm. to him from Orkney. And also, I really liked his fleece. One or two of his sheep had slightly different fleece. It was not quite double-coated, and it was definitely soft. A lovely crimp and very fine. I got quite excited by this. So it, it was Bob I went to when we moved to Orkney in 2013 and bought a house um, which had some land. And all my sheep came from him. And then I took up his attempts to get them registered. And things had moved on in the Rare Breed Survival Trust. And in 2017, a little team came up here to see them. They were familiar with Bob and Ann's breeding records. And they put them on a supplementary register. So linked with the borrower, but on a slightly different register. So we could interbreed if we wanted, but we don't need to. So tell me a little bit about the fleece. You mentioned it's not Mm. quite double-coated. Sometimes those, I'm going to use air quotes that my listeners can't hear, but (laughs) primitive sheep such as Shetland and Icelandic have not only, we say double-coated, but they have... Mm multiple different coats. Yeah. When you say they're not quite double coated, do you mean that it's more uniform? Yeah. I mean, if people ask me to describe the fleece, I say mm-hmm. variable. Oh, okay. Variable between sheep mm-hmm. and within an individual fleece. <laughs> so, so some of the sheep have your classic, lovely double coated fleece. Um, mm-hmm. Deborah Robson wrote a wonderful article about double-coated fleeces in mm-hmm. Ply magazine, mm-hmm. I think a couple of years ago. And she actually talks about a mixed fiber fleece. Mm-hmm. And I think that is more applicable to some of our sheep. So, so we have some that are your classic double-coated, very hairy, coarse, long outer coat, very, very fine undercoat, short undercoat. Somewhere there's not so much difference. Mm-hmm. And then we've got this small group that the the hair is so fine and so short that if you didn't know they're supposed to be double coated, I don't think you would recognize it as such. Mm-hmm. It's just luscious. It really, it's the, the first time I had twins born in 2017. And that's the first time when they were a year old, I got my hands on the fleece as I was ruining it. They shed naturally. So I rue my sheep, going back to the ancient practice. And I was just absolutely gobsmacked. I mean, the feel 
of this luscious, soft, gorgeous fleece on my hands. Mm -hmm. So the little castrated male, the weather, was immediately taken off the potential mutton list. (laughs) And he is definitely kept just for his fleece. Mm -hmm. And his twin sister has given us some lovely lambs. Can you tell me a little bit more about rooing? Mm. I'm familiar with the idea and I've seen some of the sheep, such as the soe, you know, you, you can mm. see them losing their fleece and, and even some Shetlands still have the, the natural yeah. break. But I've never met anybody who went through the process of rooing a sheep. Yeah, I think partly because I'm a spinner. Mm-hmm. And while I've had some gorgeous Shetland fleeces from Shetland, mm-hmm. you go into Jameson Smith and you go through the back and down the steps into what we call Oliver's Fine Fleece Store. And this is where they put all the fleeces from the kindly Shetland sheep that have, yes, again, they're not really double coated and it's what is spun into the lace weight and the cobweb mm-hmm. weight. Uh-huh. And, and it's luscious and I bring it home. But because it's been sheared, often you have to, you can find the point between right. the old and the new fleece and it's a weak spot. Mm-hmm. So often I will quite vigorously try and comb it out. Mm-hmm. Now, when you rue, At that weak spot, what happens is if the sheep's left alone, that weak spot, that the fleece falls off. But if you get the sheep just before it falls off, you pluck it. And then you've got a completely intact fiber with no break, a weak spot at either end. So that's just one year, a one year time Mm. capsule from where it... Yeah. But when you comb, say, a a pet, I mean, I'm thinking of... What kind of animals do I take hair off? You know, a cat or a dog. And they lie there and they, they stretch out. <laughs> so now I don't picture your sheep doing that. No, no. Um, traditionally, they had their legs tied together. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you tie a front leg and the opposite side back leg together. Mm-hmm. And if you've got a particularly obstreperous sheep, you might need to tie the other two legs together as well. Mm-hmm. Didn't work for us. I don't think I was tying the legs tightly enough. You know, I was looking at my lovely sheep and thinking, oh, no, I can't, can't tie this tightly around your little leg. <laughs> um, so my husband holds them mm-hmm. and or anyone holds them. I mean, sometimes I'll, I can hold one myself and do a bit of ruining if, it, if it's a you and I can grab her and I can see bits falling off. I'll grab her and I'll manage to do it all by myself. But it's uh, I mean, it can be quite a lab- laborious process. You are literally plucking lock by lock. Mm. Unless you get really lucky and it occasionally happens, and we've even got it on a YouTube video, a lot of the fleece is ready to come off at the same time mm-hmm. and it peels off because it is literally about to fall. Mm-hmm. That is joy <laughs> because it does just peel. Yeah. And you can get a whole sheep done. In a couple of minutes. Usually it isn't all ready to rue off at the same time. So you have to come back. If there's only a bit left, then I blade shear it off along the line where it would have broken because it avoids the first catch your sheep scenario. (laughs) And you speak about that in the book. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. They don't flock. Mm -hmm. They are so primitive. And unlike many of the other North Atlantic short-tailed sheep, that have been kept in Nordic countries and have been farmed, that, that they are taken inside every winter. This slot, because they've been feral for so many years, they don't flock, they scatter. 
mm-hmm. and they can turn on a sixpence and they can run like the wind. <laughs> so we started off making a catching pen of sheep hurdles mm-hmm. with a feeding trough in and we'd get them coming in for a little treat feed of beet nuts. And you do that regularly and they come in quite happily. And then when you want to do something, you quickly slam the hurdles shut and then you've got them. And then you have to very quickly push them to one end so they're not sort of squashed together, but quite tightly together mm-hmm. so they can't start jumping out. So this is not just go out in the field and shake a bucket? Certainly not in the early days. Mm-hmm. Things have moved on since then because, of course, my sheep know me. Yeah. And I do rotational grazing where we have them in small areas of a field with electric fencing. So now they've only got to see me and they think, oh, she's going to move us to a new bit of grazing, which is a point of great excitement for them. Of course. So they actually now follow me. Hmm. And I have had one group follow me the entire length of the farm with, with sort of a long, thin strip of fields running up a valley. Uh, and they have followed me the entire length. So what you have to do is um, we've got several catching pens now that are through ways. Mm-hmm. So they expect to be going through them to the new grazing, except, uh-oh, she's closed the gate at the far end. <laughs> and then we've got them. Mm-hmm. So it's a bit easier than it was, but it's still first catch your sheep. In some ways, you're living what I think is a lot of a lot of spinners' fantasy of becoming a shepherd. You know, every once in a while, you'll read something from Shetland about, wouldn't you like to come and live here? And there's this fantasy about, I'm just going to go live on the island and and raise sheep. But you actually kind of did that. That was the intention. Oh boy, that was the intention. <laughs> uh, we were, I was going to have a tiny little flock of five lambs, mm-hmm. um, all castrated males, and we were going to buy a house with a field. Mm-hmm. And then I would get them tame and they'd be my pets. And I'd take the fleece off them every year and that would be that. And They'd love me and they'd be so tame, they'd come up to me. Two things happened. One was the house with a field actually was a house with 25 acres. Oh, my goodness. And the five lovely weather lambs from Bob Cook were four and a ram lamb that was too good to castrate. (laughs) So when you've got a breeding ram and 25 acres, Mm -hmm. yeah, kind of the rest is history. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And... It seriously impacted my spinning and weaving and knitting time. Seriously. Oh, that's interesting. So part of the reality of it is not only going out into the middle of the night and just the realities of being a farmer, but the realities of being a person who is intensely busy with another part of their craft. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, things have moved on. Wow. Yes. In 2017, when we realized that actually I had on my farm all that existed of the lost flock Mm -hmm. of known provenance, Mm -hmm. huge responsibility. Mm -hmm. So I decided the sensible thing to do was to start getting other flocks started elsewhere Mm -hmm. in Orkney. And we got one started on Chapinsay with a friend within a few weeks. And then in order to keep them, we had to make money. They had to at least pay for themselves. And sadly, in the UK, you can't do that just with fleece, certainly with a primitive breed, because if we had ultra fine merino or kindly Shetland or one of the long wools, 
where the wool is, any spinner can probably process the wool fairly easily and enjoy spinning it. And it can have a high value. I mean, even for the highest value fleeces, it's nothing like what people pay in America. Right. So there are very, very few flocks kept just for their fleece. Double coated, you've got to do a lot more processing. So it's not something that spinners are going to say, oh, I want that. And variable. I mean, some of them have a lot of hair and kemp. Mm-hmm. That's not nice for a spinner. <laughs> not, not unless you're wanting to be sort of producing some sort of peg loom mat for the floor. Right. Well, and something that has, say, a, a medium and a fine in it, that that could be lovely for a spinner. You'd get a couple different kinds of wool, but something that has, as you say, kemp and all those other yeah. things on a fairly small fleece. Yes. Yep. So one and a half kilos is a good size for a fleece. Oh my goodness. And by the time we've taken, yeah, so that's what, about three pounds. By the time you've taken off the bridge, and which is often not nice. Nasty, yes. Rough, rough as a badger's, badger's ass, someone <laughs> described it as. You might be left with, what, a pound or two mm-hmm. of usable fleece. And I really, if I'm spinning it myself, I, I will separate into outer coat and undercoat, uh-huh. unless it's one of the fine fleece sheep. And uh, after that first pair, we did have one or two more crop up, including a ram mm-hmm. who passed it on to some of his offspring. So we are doing a little bit of selective breeding and increasing the numbers. Uh, the result was a very special yarn goes on the Blacker Yarns website. Mm. And this is, I collected three years worth of the very fine fleeces, plus some of the undercoat from the necks of some of the other ewes. And I was able to get 20 kilos. It's about what, 44 pounds of it, which yes. is the minimum for the natural fiber company. Uh-huh. And they have spun it into, I donated it to them. The work involved in doing it, the ruing and then the separating and the storing was phenomenal. And I did it really because a very dear friend of mine, Sue Blacker, who will be known to so many people who really appreciate yarns from different breeds. It's over two years since she died. And I wanted to do something special for her because she taught me so much about wool and fleece. And I thought she she deserves this. So we have the Lost Flock Sue Blacker Memorial Yarn which is this rude, ultra-fine fleece. Uh, I mean, I sent down just over 20 kilos. Then it would have been scoured and carded and combed. Uh-huh. There isn't a huge amount. Of the 44 pounds of wool, I mean, how much loss do you typically get in a, in a Boré fleece? I, I think they'll have been lucky if they got 30 pounds mm. of usable fleece, possibly a bit less. Mm-hmm. Depends how many times they combed it. Right. I mean, it was already pre-sorted into this is the ultra fine stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when we talk ultra fine, I mean, De- Deborah Robson, at uh, the time I was in first looking at the Boré sheep, her amazing, I call it the Bible for fleecy people, the mm-hmm. Fleece and Fibre Source book came out mm-hmm. and she had micron tested all the breeds mm-hmm. and she shared the results she'd had of the Boré, which actually was from Bob Cook's sheep. Um, so that's, that's the lost flock sheep. 
and some of the undercoat. She ha- actually had it retested because she didn't believe it. It's mm. down to cashmere level. Mm. Uh, I think it's about 17, 18 microns or something. Mm. Insanely fine. It is. And it's the feel of it. When you get your fingers on it, you kind of think, oh, my goodness. I mean, I, I know normal people won't go into rhapsodies of delight over police, but, <laughs> you know, hey. But we don't know any of those people, so it's all good. <laughs> well, exactly. Yeah, it's, it has, you could actually feel, it's not just looking at it, there's mm-hmm. a feel of it. It's the same with, with the, the very, very fine Shetland fleeces for lace rate spinning, almost mouse hair softness. But mm. What is the staple length typically? Oh, uh, variable. <laughs> Sorry. That seems to be a theme. <laughs> it's, it, it is a theme. And it's actually something that we're very careful about when we plan our breeding mm-hmm. to retain the variability in the look of the sheep because that's part that diversity is so important. Mm-hmm. So um, staple length, some of the hairs might be, say, six inches long. Like on this. That's very It's long. not as long as Icelandic. Mm-hmm. But, but not short. Them. A lot longer than so, eh? some of them. Some of the hairs might just be two or three inches. Uh-huh. The undercoat is almost always a lot shorter, maybe one or two, one or two inches. And then this mixed fine fleece is a bit longer, uh-huh. maybe four inches or so. And the, the undercoat I'll often put into rolags and spin very fine. And then if I want a thicker yarn, I'll just have more plies. So you sit and separate. I'm just picturing you with a fleece and you're sitting here making one pile on one side and one on the other. How do you separate them? You literally take a lock. If it's your classic double-coated fleece, you take a lock and you you hold the butt end Mm -hmm. and then you just start gently easing the hairs out. Mm -hmm. And they do, if, if it's a fresh fleece, they do just separate. And that the Vikings used to put the fleeces into, when they rooted them, into sheepskin bags, which were Mm -hmm. cured with fish oil. And then they sealed them up. And then in the winter, they'd be in their longhouses round a fire and it's all moist and damp. And they'd get them out of the sealed bags. And of course, they were all oily and soft. And then they could separate them readily. Uh One of the things that you talked about in the book that we sort of perked up our ears about was knowing a little bit about how how the Vikings, how the Nordic seafarers used this wool. I, th- I think not everybody understands that sails were spun on spindles and made from wool. Yeah. I first heard about this when I was at the North Atlantic Native Sheep Wool Conference in Iceland in 2014. And it was, oh my goodness, wool. How could you have wool sails? <laughs> And then, of course, I started reading up more about it. And there's been some wonderful research done about it. And really, the, they couldn't have made the sails as they did without double-coated fleeces. Huh. And rude double-coated fleeces, because ideally you need each end of each fibre to be naturally sealed off, not to have been cut by shears, because the centre core of a Fiber, wool fiber is, of course, microscopically hollow. Mm-hmm. And if it's the natural rude, then it's sort of sealed off. Mm-hmm. And they, they use the long, strong hair. It was spun in one direction. Yes. <laughs> I think it was clockwise. I think it was clockwise. And that was the warp. 
on the loom. Now they use warp weighted looms. So you had a sort of rectangular frame and you had your warp threads attached to the top, the beam at the top and hanging down. And in groups, they were tied to loom weights, which might just be fired play, a sort of ball thing with a hole in it. And you'd tie your warp thread to that. So that was your hair. That was your long, strong hair fibers. Then they took the undercoat, which they spun in the opposite direction. Mm-hmm. And when I do this, I separate and spin them myself. Of course, the hair, you're spinning it worsted style. Yes. Because they're so long. Whereas even if you've just got your undercoat on a distaff, you sort of fluffed it up and put it on a distaff. And apparently the Vikings used hand distaffs. Mm-hmm. And I'm just trying to get to learn to use one. You're getting much more towards a woolen type spinning, mm-hmm. even if you weren't formally making Rolex. And then that was the, the weft, and that was where. So you've got two completely different types of fiber. They use the twill pattern. That's where you, if you look at a piece of twill cloth, you sort of see diagonal lines mm-hmm. running along it. Yes. So a two two by two twill was common. Mm-hmm. Woven in strips, then fooled, sometimes just by being put in the sea, weighted down with rocks, and the waves would do the fulling for you. Then sewn together to make a square sail. And then they coated it with resins and oils to make it even more wind and waterproof. Because both of those things, both a twill and spinning in one direction and the other, would make something pack in. Yeah, which so you, you, you're wanting something that doesn't have the wind whistling through it. Yes, <laughs> and the the first people, the first person who heard about this, who was actually male, I think this is significant. Pooh pooed the idea of wool sails and made some very disparaging remarks. Hmm. And then they found some old pieces of wool sail in a church in Norway that was several hundred years old. And they found the eyelets, the sewn eyelets. Mm-hmm. And that's how they were able to establish these were sails. And they've done replica sails since then mm-hmm. and discovered that actually they are remarkable. And when they've tested them in the sort of facilities where you test Olympic sails, mm-hmm. they absorb far more in the sense of gusts of wind than hemp or linen. Mm-hmm. And they sort of stretch and form a three-dimensional shape, which is not dissimilar to what you get on Olympic yachts with the Kevlar sails, that where you have lots of pieces of sailcloth that you cut into a particular shape to get this three-dimensional shape. I mean, the, the sophistication of the technology is remarkable. And then, of course, all your Vikings in this open boat out on the ocean had wool clothing. Yep. which would have kept them warm and dry. Mm-hmm. They might have had an oiled leather cloak as well. Mm-hmm. But of course, wool, when it gets wet, it warms up a bit. Yes, and holds a remarkable amount of water before you start to feel wet. It's it does. Amazing. And then you get that chemical reaction that actually generates heat. And the wool fibers swell so the wind can't whistle <laughs> through your clothing. I mean, I've read one article called No Wool, No Vikings. Hmm. And certainly I can't see that they could have been sailing around the North Atlantic in little open boats without wool sails and wool clothing. 
So as we're speaking, I hear an interest in history and in science and all of these different passions, but you don't have a background in rearing sheep or animal husbandry. Is that right? Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, my first sheep were my first borrower sheep. Um, I, I grew up in the countryside and I kept chickens, mm-hmm. but that's it. And I had, you know, rode ponies as a child, mm-hmm. but that was it. I, age of 55, I had my first sheep. <laughs> and I can, I can tell from the way you speak that you're not originally from Scotland. No, I grew up uh, right in the middle of England in a county called Warwickshire, mm-hmm. which is um, nicknamed the Leafy County because it has mm. a lot of trees. So, yes, I was lucky enough to grow up in the countryside with lots of woods where I could roam around with my friends or on my pony. There are not a lot of woods on Orkney, are there? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, we do have trees and in sheltered spots, we even have little woods. It's one reason why we bought the house we did, because it does have some trees that were planted about 60 years ago mm-hmm. and are now all of hmm, about 20 feet tall at most. So they grow slowly, but um, willow grows here. So um, I, I do grow, plant lots of willow. It's a challenging place, but yes, we, we have trees and I'm glad of that. Does all of this come from being a knitter or a spinner? Oh, yes. Yes. It definitely started. The, the whole sheep thing definitely started with being a knitter. I mean, in 2010, I took a workshop in Scotland with Deb Robson. Mm-hmm. And it was on knitting with wool from different breeds. And she shared with us some of her research from her book. And Blacker Yarns had donated a whole load of different wools. Right. I think we had people from four continents mm-hmm. in that workshop. And um, we had such an amazing day with Deb. I mean, it was, you know, you have an amazing teacher. You have amazing resources to play with. Mm-hmm. And then we had this fantastic group. It's about 30 people. It was a big workshop. That is big. Um, that, that was no problem for Deb. I mean, we all got so much out of it. And then, of course, we got to the end of the day and we said, oh, well, this can't be the end of it. So lots of us were on Ravelry. Mm-hmm. So I started the Blacker and Beyond group, which, yeah, which was a, quite a big thing. It's still there. I've actually come back to it recently and said, we, we really should reinvigorate the group. Mm-hmm. What it's got, we, we had a Sheep of the Week feature. And being quite a methodical person, I used the resources on Ravelry. So in the back end of the group, there are all the pages. Mm-hmm. So we have indexes of, you can look up any breed. And it will link you to the thread where we studied that breed. I have the impression that over the past 10 or 20 years, interest in breed-specific work, whether it's, I, I think spinners have always been a little bit more interested, but yeah. having access to breed-specific yarns has really grown over the last decade or two. Yeah, I, I think a lot of this in the UK comes down to Sue Blacker. Hmm. And when she started the Natural Fibre Company, there was very little, apart from perhaps Shetland, which of course has always been a very special yarn. North Ronaldsay yarn, because we have the North Ronaldsay sheep in Orkney and a mill. Mm-hmm. So that was available. And those are the famous uh, sheep who eat seaweed. Exactly. Yes. 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 <laughs> Lovely sheep and very close cousins to the Barmery. Mm-hmm. But, but yes, it was, um, it was really blacker yarns that 
got it going and made it accessible to people. And they, they go around a lot of the fibre festivals so people can actually get their hands on it mm-hmm. and talk to the staff there because there's such a difference between a long wool. Yes, I should say Wensidale. Of course, oh. the Wensidale long wool cheap shop has been going for quite a while. Uh-huh. And yes, it's knowing how to knit and what to knit with different breeds. I mean, Sue wrote her, her own book which not only has the lovely patterns for specific breeds, but at section at the back, it tells you how to match your breed to a pattern, hmm. which is so useful. And how do you, is it something where you follow advice from something like that? Or do you sort of try it out and see what, see what it wants to be? Good question. I think talking to other people, either in person or online, uh-huh. and using the resources that are there, I mean, when you think of the long walls where you've got luster and drape, mm-hmm. but just as you mustn't spin the long walls too tightly, you mustn't knit them tightly because when you wash your garment, it blooms. Mm-hmm. The Ravelry used to have a sort of magazine, and I actually wrote a feature every month on knitting with wool from different breeds. And I, I know that I did Wensleydale one month, and I actually knitted a sample, photographed it, and then washed it to show people how it bloomed. Uh-huh. So you've got to really know what you're, what you're knitting with. And then you get onto the downland breeds yes. and the south down, of course, that are so fantastic for socks. I started my life as a knitter. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. actually, when I started the Black and Beyond group, at that point, I was not, I had only just had my first spinning lesson. Mm-hmm. So I came to breeds as a knitter. Yeah. And that has always been important to me. And it's why even now I'm looking beyond just fleece for spinners. Uh, I want knitters to be able to have the variety and the best and the most gorgeous and the loveliest to knit with. Yes. Was it the wool itself that spoke to you as a knitter or was it something about the source of it? that drew you to these breed-specific or rare-breed yarns? It was the wool, because uh, where I grew up, there weren't really any sheep. Mm-hmm. I've always had an interest in them, but it was, it was the wool. I, I used to go to fibre festivals many years ago and not just look at the lovely yarns, but if there was a little corner where they had fleeces, I'd go and I'd sniff. Wool huffing. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. That's a better way to put it. And I'd feel them mm-hmm. and it just spoke to me. But I always said, oh, I can't learn to spin, A, because I'm a very uncoordinated person. Mm-hmm. And also I had a horrible feeling it would suck me into this black hole of taking up my life. <laughs> um, I was wrong oh, about the coordination. I was absolutely right about the black hole. <laughs> And I've now learned to spindle spin because we have visitors coming to the farm. Uh-huh. And increasingly, it's groups of knitters, which I absolutely love. In September, we had a lovely, lovely group of American knitters come to the farm. And I, I, I've got a display set up and I talk about history of the sheep and the fleece. And I have wool for them to feel and washed fleece that they can handle. And I love talking to all these knitters from around the world. That's brilliant. Yeah. Talking about the yarns 
the ones that are coming out from the natural fiber company now, but you also had a previous batch of wool that became yarn. Is that right? So because mm. this yes, fleece that- is so unusual, you would have had to sort of figure out what to do with it. Yes. I mean, when Felix sent me the challenge that she wanted Borrowe yarn and I mm-hmm. contacted, got hold of these people with Borrowe, she drove around the country picking up, some of them posted it to me and I'd <laughs> refund the postage. Not one of them took up my offer to pay for the fleece, which I thought was just wonderful. And so I got the 20 kilos that Sue needed to spin the first ever Borrowe yarn. And it was an hour and weight yarn. And they still do bring it out at intervals as one of their rare breed yarns. But even then, we'd notice the fine stuff. I had some of my spinning friends round to help sort it out because Mm -hmm. we obviously couldn't just send it down to... Um, natural fiber company as it was. I mean, it had all sorts in it. When I say that we christened that day the poo party, <laughs> I don't think I need to say any more about what was in it. I mean, these were people who weren't used to selling their fleece. So mm-hmm. it just came. And it, not really in whole fleeces. Often it was home sheared. So even if it's electric shears, it's people who would just take a bit off at a time. Um, yeah, quite sure. But yes, we saw the really fine stuff and I thought, oh, oh, luscious. Um, <laughs> quick phone call to Sue. Yes, if we took some of that out, it wouldn't affect the feel of the final yarn. Mm-hmm. So actually, that's when I did my first go at separating. Mm-hmm. We kept, I kept back the stuff that had lots of fine undercoat and spent the winter, as you described, basket <laughs> either side of me. <laughs> hand separating it. While I was doing that, Sue was busy with the um, mill staff trying to work out how they could do it in the mill without much wastage. Mm-hmm. And I got a very phone, phone call saying, we've done it. Oh. So I just took the rest down. What they did was they blended it with very fine soy because mm-hmm. there just wasn't enough. <laughs> and soy was obvious. And this is the St Kilda Laceweight yarn that is still very popular. It's a wonderful lace lace weight to knit with, especially for knitters who struggle. Um, if you've got silk or the very, very shiny blue-faced Leicester or very shiny, slippery merino, and you're trying to do complicated lace weight, well, if you're like me, you drop stitches and things. Yes. The St. Kilda just has a little bit of feel to it. I just love knitting with it. Mm-hmm. And that um, they now blend it with a bit of Shetland if they can't get enough borrowing soy some years, and the natural colour changes a bit every year. So I've actually done a knitted a shawl with different years worth of shades on it. But I got a friend of mine, Elizabeth Lovick, who has lived in Orkney for many many years, and many people will know her either her patterns or they'll have taken classes with her and. It was Liz who taught me to spin and knit lace weight. And I asked her if she'd design a special St. Kilda pattern. So we poured through the photographs of the women in St. Kilda and the shawls they wore, looking for what we thought would be Shetland-type patterns. No, no. They wore woven cloth. Their shawls were woven cloth with tassels. Mm-hmm. This didn't daunt Liz. She simply created a pattern for us that is 
a magnified woven cloth, if that makes sense. How much do the fleece colors vary? You went with with Shetland and Iceland, and you know the variety of colors is really striking. Do you have the range of colors in Borrowe sheep? Not quite the range of Shetland, in that the brownie tanny color is extremely rare. Mm. A lot of the lambs are born sort of sparkly white with dark colored bits on their faces and their lower legs and their tail, and sometimes a little collar around the back of their neck that occasionally comes around the front of their chest. A few of them are born a bit darker, but a lot of them darken every year with age. So, and some of them have a steely gray color that they're going towards, and some of them it's a warmer browner grayish color. And then we get the occasional one that is sort of more of a tan color. Is color something that you're breeding for? You mentioned different coat types. Yes, to wait. Um, I should say we've now got eight flocks in Orkney. (laughs) And obviously, every person has their own preferences. Mm -hmm. So Jenny loves the dark ones. And I made sure that her first, her second ram was a very dark ram who passes it on. Kim in Westray, she she likes anything unusual or unusual splodges. <laughs> and then another of our farmers actually likes the lighter coloured ones. So between ourselves, we have got an enormous variation and we can each follow our own particular favourites while keeping up the diversity within the flock as a whole. I should say numbers-wise, I started off, um, it took me two years to get my sort of initial breeding flock, and that was 11 ewes and four rams. Uh-huh. And we now have over 200 between us in the, in the whole of Orkney. Oh, my goodness. So the, the lost flock, which is now eight, eight flocks, has gone from just a few to, to over 200. Yeah. Hmm. We, we do produce mutton. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And you know, unashamedly, we are not. We can't financially be wool-only flocks, and so of course we've had quite a few of the usually castrated males mm-hmm. um, over the age of two years old, two years old or older, mm-hmm. ha- have gone for mutton. So the number we've bred is even greater. Right. So in the U.S., we talk about a farm-to-table. I don't know whether you have that term as well, but uh, you have a farm-to-table and also a farm to farm-to-needles is a little bit. More specialized, sounds like. That's a little bit rarer. Yeah. I mean, the good news for spinners is that I I am going to start selling some of the very, very fine fleece next year. Now I'm not needing to collect it for this special yarn. So in addition to the range of natural colors that are available, how does it dye? Extremely well. Really? It's lovely. And because even if you've selected out what you might call the white mm-hmm. fibers, which are actually a sort of slightly creamy off-white. Mm-hmm. Um, when you dye it, you don't get that, whatever color you dye it with, you don't get that sort of really bright look that you associate with acrylic yarns. Mm-hmm. You, you look at it and you think, this is, this is natural. Mm-hmm. So it just gives a hint of color. And in fact, but blacker yarns did for a couple of years get a hand dyer to actually dye a range of colors mm-hmm. and, and they were lovely. So it's really super 
super yarn for dyeing. You can also take the three, you could divide it into light, medium and dark colours and dye the whole lot in one colour. And then you've got the gradation to play around with. Very versatile. What this is making me think of is the way these sheep were essentially bred to produce everything you might need mm. and to take care of themselves. When you hear about sheep that have been isolated for a while on an island, and then you think about sheep who are lost in Australia or something, and after a couple of years, they're lucky mm. if they survive at all and they have these massive fleeces, versus the bore who can be out there by themselves because they shed their fleece. They don't yeah. need someone to come and take it off them. And the way they're so well designed to live where they are. Yeah, they are thriving in Orkney. We are wet, windy and temperate, which of course is just what St Kilda is. Mm -hmm. They don't get any of the foot diseases that sheep get, especially on damp ground. Uh, even on the wettest moorland, and I've got bogs on my land, no foot problems at all. They they lamb themselves. Mm -hmm. um, in our lambing field, we we don't cut down rushes. We leave all the rushes, and and they some of them take themselves off and lamb quietly. There, some of them just plop their lambs out in the middle of the <laughs> lambing paddock, but that's fine. And they do it. Um, often standing up. There's none of this lying down and grunting and pushing because these are primitive shaped lambs and come out little torpedo shaped lambs. Mm -hmm. And even if they've got one front leg back or even occasionally two front legs back, they push them out themselves. Mm. Um, very little intervention and we don't, we don't intervene unless, I mean, maybe one a year where I think, yeah, she's pushed long enough. Let's just give her a hand. What do you do for veterinary care? Oh, we're very, very lucky in Orkney. We have two veterinary practices. Mm -hmm. And of course, um, we have so many livestock farms here because there's not much food you can grow in Orkney. Right. Uh, we, we can't grow wheat. A few farms can grow oats. Some can grow barley. And then you can grow tatties and neeps, uh, potatoes and turnips. Okay. Um, <laughs> You can grow uh, cabbage mm -hmm. and a cauliflower, local cauliflowers in the shops. That's about it. So it's livestock. Yeah. Yeah. And how far are you from the mainland? Uh, the Scottish mainland. Yes. I'm just trying to think how far is it? It must be 20, well, from the tip of South Romsey, I think it's about 20 miles or so. It's a really good question. I'm not sure I know the answer. <laughs> I should know the answer. Um, the, the, ferry, the ferry from South Romsey takes an hour mm -hmm. and the ferry from Stronsey, which is the west part of the biggest island in Orkney, which we call mainland, mm -hmm. confusingly, that takes an hour and a half. You know, it, it is fairly remarkable that you are out there with your very ancient sheep and we are speaking over a broadband connection. That is fairly remarkable. <laughs> um, given the state of broadband in Orkney, it's more remarkable than you might think. Um, but that they are, it, it has improved in recent years. But when we first moved here, I, I run Woolsack, uh, the Woolsack website, and actually it was incredibly difficult just to keep that updated with the amount of broadband that was here 10 years ago. So now we can, you know, we, we can do Zoom videos and that's right. It's great. Tell me about Woolsack. Wilson, ah, there's another Sue Blacker. 
in 2010, there was when King Charles started the campaign for wool, there was a crisis in the British wool industry in that farmers were being paid far less for their fleece than it cost to shear the sheep. So Prince Charles started the campaign for wool that's still going. Sue Blacker, unsurprisingly, looked at the situation, thought ahead to the 2012 Olympic and Paralympic Games and thought, we must do something. And um, they had the Olympic Games organization, which was called LOCOG, did have a program to involve community groups in the Olympics. It was called um, the Inspire Program. So Sue actually went through the reams of paperwork required. She, She came up with the concept that we would make British wool cushions stuffed with British wool Mm-hmm. to give us gifts to the athletes. And the reason it's called Wolfsack is because in the House of Lords um, in Westminster in London, we have this, where it looks like a big seat, <laughs> that is the Wolfsack mm-hmm. that actually is a sack of wool. <laughs> um, it's now covered with red velvet. It was put there in the 14th century, I think, in recognition that England's wealth was built on its wool. Is that is it still the same wool or do they change it out? No, no, it's been changed out. Um, at some point in the 20th century, they actually took it apart, realized it was actually being stuffed with horsehair at some point. <laughs> and it um, was instead stuffed with wool from all the Commonwealth countries. Oh. So it, it is definitely wool. Uh, I mean, I mean a, a wool sack is a massive thing. It would take yes. two strong men to... Sort of, it's it's how the wool is transported from farms to the British wool board. Yes, often like tramped, tromped down. <laughs> mm, absolutely, yes. Yeah. You, you 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 have a special metal frame mm-hmm. that holds the sack open, mm-hmm. and then yes, you squash it all down. And uh, I'm not sure the weight it holds. I certainly couldn't couldn't lift one. But back to wool sack from mm. Sue Blacker and these cushions. Mm. You mentioned that you still run the wool sack. So once the project was finished, well, what does wool well, sack become? Part of the project was we had to get volunteers, mm-hmm. let, vol- let people know if they wanted to join in to knit cushions. We had mm-hmm. very strict rules about what logos and images and words and numbers could go on the cushions mm-hmm. because of the Olympic rules. Yes. Even though we were a, an official project. So my husband set up a website, wolfsack.org so that people could get the information they needed on how to make the cushions. Sue, of course, was working full-time at the mill, so I kind of took over the, the website and organizing lots of things. We had regional volunteers, and we had what was a first for the Olympic Games. We had a list of suppliers on our website that were not donors to the Olympic Games because we went, Sue and I went to the headquarters in London in a very palatial building with marble walls. There's certainly no money being um, <laughs> Yeah. And um, we said, look, people, at the time in 2010, you couldn't go into your local yarn shop and buy British wool. Hmm. So we said, people need to know where they can buy British wool. And the only way we can get this message across is a list of shops or mail order suppliers where people could get it. And they agreed we could do it. 
the project had its ups and downs. I could talk for a whole day on the ups and downs. <laughs> so, Sue and I were talking about a couple of years before she died of actually writing the story because uh, we were too successful. The um, sponsors didn't like us because we were making these wonderful British wall cushions mm-hmm. and they tried to shut us down. And we said no. So instead of the cushions being handed over to the Olympic Committee, we had we had to contact athletes via social media. We contacted all the organising committees for all the countries. And we said, if you want a British wall cushion, let us know. Mm-hmm. Um, the American diving team got their cushions given to them at King's Cross Station. <laughs> the British um, athletics team got theirs. Um, I handed them over to one of their coaches in a pub car park near Loughborough University where they were training. And then athletes started contact and then athletes started going to their coaches and saying, we want these cushions. Mm-hmm. So we had to go outside the system. But mm-hmm. every single cushion that was made got mm-hmm. to an athlete. Um, that the last few, finally, the British Paralympic team organization, organizers heard about us. Mm-hmm. This was last minute, contacted me and said, oh, can we have cushions? I said, you can have everything we've got left. I think it was 52. Oh, my goodness. So How many I cushions told, were there total? It's about 7,000. That's a lot of cushions. Uh, I mean, once we realized that the, the original plan that every bedroom in the Olympic Village, every bed would have one of our cushions on it for the athlete to take away afterwards, that that was abandoned, we stopped advertising for volunteers. And my commitment to myself then, and yeah, talk about counting sheep at night. I had sleepless nights over this. Mm-hmm. I decided I was going to make sure every single cushion that was made got to an athlete. Mm-hmm. So after that phone call and after I'd posted them off, <laughs> I got very drunk that night. <laughs> <laughs> you earned it. <laughs> yeah. And then... I actually got to go down to, to the Paralympics. I had managed to get tickets for a day at the Paralympics, went down with my daughter, and we had the most amazing day there. And um, I, I actually sat there in the stadium knitting, but not a cushion. But there's still a Woolsack website. Is that right? There is. I mean, what happened was we had to know what was being put in the cushions. Mm-hmm. So we had stuffing events at the various fiber festivals. And the Fiber Festival organizers were wonderful and they gave me a free stand every time. Mm-hmm. And I got volunteers and people would bring their cushions and we had huge sacks of wool stuffing and either they'd leave them with us or they could stuff them themselves. And then we got them to put a label on with a little bit of information about themselves mm-hmm. and contact details. And the number of them who had tweets or emails from athletes was just fantastic. So there was a very personal relationship there. Yeah. But some of the stall holders started coming up to me and said, Google Analytics. I had no idea what Google Analytics was. (laughs) I'm getting such a lot of custom through your website. Uh So people were thinking British Wool, okay, Woolsack website, look up British Wool, click the link and going through. So when the games finished, I decided this, we couldn't just stop the website. Mm-hmm. 
And as soon as the legal restraints on what we could have on the website disappeared, I think it took nine months after the end of the Games, I expanded the website to be anything made from British wool. Hmm. And it's still running. I think this is the only Inspire project that is still going. I will be honest, while I've been writing the book, it's not been updated. <laughs> I have a bookmark list as long as you are of new businesses to go on or new products to go on. And I need to do a complete check and go through. That is wonderful that there are so many new projects. Mm. I mean, the thing I've noticed over the, because I've been tracking British wool over the years and British wool knitting yarn, the big change since 2010, 2011 has been in the number of farms doing their own knitting yarn. And we actually have a special section of the website just for these yarns that come from a specified farm and therefore specified breed. Um, the other trend I've noticed is blending different breeds together. So you have a blended yarn with named breeds where the mill or the yarn designer is looking at the different qualities from different breeds and thinking what is going to make this most fabulous knitting yarn. And some of the knitwear designers themselves have their own ranges of yarns and often they're a blend. And this is so exciting. I mean, it gives so much choice for knitters. I wonder whether part of the reason that this site is still so valuable is that knitters are hungry to make a connection with the farm. And so this is an opportunity. Maybe it's a farm they visited. Maybe it's a farm they dream of. But to, to have a connection with the person who's raising the sheep and the sheep themselves and say, my yarn is from this patch of land. Mm. And also people, if they're studying their family history or they know where their family comes from, we, we have another page that has lists yarn, yarns by region. Mm -hmm. So we have certain areas of the country where they're making yarns from sheep in that area. So you can knit a yarn that's got some historical connection to your family. It's part of the appeal of, of the tartan, that there's a family mm -hmm. connection there. It's a family Absolutely. connection to the yarn. Yeah. We also do have, um, because there are vegan and vegetarian knitters, Mm -hmm. We also have the wool only page, and that does list the few flocks where the sheep are kept just for their wool. Mm -hmm. So that expands it for knitters who don't like to eat meat or, or whatever. It, it gives them choice. So can you tell me a bit about your book? I've had the pleasure of reading it, but for for listeners who might be looking to pick it up. Yes. It started off as telling the story of the sheep. There's a bit more of my story in it than I'd have ever thought of putting in. I have a lovely, lovely editor, but she's quite persuasive. <laughs> so, yes, there's a bit more of my story. It's got different themes and different threads running through it. Okay. And working with a good editor was essential for that because they literally do weave yeah. to make it a more interesting read. So it's got the story of the history of the sheep from 6,000 years ago, the, the ancestors of the sheep, which is the history of all the North Atlantic short-tailed breeds up to about, I would say, 200 years ago or so. Then it's the story of the Borrowery breed as such, with a lot about that whole chapter about the 1971, the collection and the research and 
Bororay Island. And then you've got the story of what we've done with them in Orkney and the Orkney Bororay community mm-hmm. and how that's taken off the abattoir. That was a hard chapter to write. So abattoir for American listeners, abattoir is a slaughterhouse, is that correct? Yeah. It's a crisis, it's a crisis in the whole of the UK mm-hmm. in that our small local slaughterhouses mm-hmm. have closed. We have very few of them left. It's a tragedy because they are, it's the farmer himself taking a small number of animals. They know the staff. It's a short journey. It's everything you would want. And the staff are multitask. So they're not only looking after the animals when they come in. Uh It's called lairage. They go into a pen, often with a deep bed of straw. And they just chill out and relax after the journey. Because you want your animals, both on meat quality grounds and welfare grounds, to be calm, not to be stressed, not to be frightened about anything. Um, They don't know what's coming. And of course, in the UK, they must be stunned. And that's what we're losing. And Orkney lost its, yes, our excellent little abattoir with fantastic staff. I mean, Brian, who worked in the Lairage, we called him the sheep whisperer because he was so good at helping us get the sheep very calmly off the trailer and settled in their pen. And all sorts of reasons financial, the regulatory burden on them is totally disproportionate to the level of risk, both in terms of food safety and environmental concerns. They have the same level of regulation pretty much as the massive factory abattoirs. And that costs money. So, yeah. Yeah. So now that you've finished the book, what sort of adventures are you looking forward to next with your flock? Ah, adventures. Or are you looking forward to not having adventures? (laughs) Yeah. um, I really want to do a big update of the Woolsack website. That kind of has been niggling me for a while now. I'm looking forward to getting back into the Blacker and Beyond group on Ravelry. Mm -hmm. I've just not had time. We're not looking to expand the number of flocks, but we're all learning more and more about how to look after them. We need to start making leather. Hmm. We we really need to create our own tannery here. So that's a big project we've got to take on, and we're going to have to try and get some grants for that. Even the smallest tannery just to deal with our own skins, because the sheep skins are beautiful mm-hmm. and sell very well, and we have them tanned by a company that does very sustainable bark tanning. So it's no nasty chemical. And, but yes, leather is something we want to start making. We've got a fantastic weaver, India Whitwell, who is weaving the most amazing cloth from the yarn. It is just uh, amazing. Um, she's doing scarves and also it's a cross between a blanket and a wrap. It's like a massive wrap, mm-hmm. but it could act as a, a lap blanket. And they are just so soft. Mm-hmm. Um, we have the yarns, the, the wool spun for us by the North Ronaldsay Mill because they're dealing with the double-coated North Ronaldsay sheep and they've got special equipment that takes out the coarsest hairs and kemp. So you end up with a much nicer knitting yarn. Jenny on Chapinsay does something very exciting in terms of personal connection, she produces her knitting yarn in 
batches from three sheep. Mm-hmm. So when you buy the yarn, you get the names of the three sheep it's come from. Oh. <laughs> and she matches the sheep by colour. So mm-hmm. she has quite a range of different natural shades. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something we should expand a bit more. Trying to increase the numbers of these very fine fleeced sheep mm-hmm. because they offer so much, especially to spinners. And if the numbers were ever to increase so that we could literally just take the fleece straight from those sheep to the mill, then we could start producing the knitting yarn again, which would be lovely. So in addition to this special yarn from the Natural Wool Company, there are other yarns that are available on a somewhat regular basis? Yes, we, we've got a website, um, orkneyborrowray.com, where we list all the people in our community. We work together as a community. Yeah. Um, so Jen is the only one at the moment producing knitting wool. She's just got another batch coming soon from the mill. Mm-hmm. But I think more of us will be. All mine goes into weaving yarn for India at the moment. For India? Oh, for, no, for India, the weaver. India oh, well. I see. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a bit confusing, that. So, yeah, they're, they're the projects that we've got on at the moment. Well, Jane, thank you so much for your time. I've, I had such a, thank you. I've had such a wonderful time talking to you, and I have really enjoyed your book, which is called The Lost Flock. Thank you. It's been lovely talking to you. Thank you for listening to the Long Thread Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate the show and leave us a comment on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Thanks again. <laughs>